0: The history of the world is the history of the rise and fall of great powers. You think of our own nation, our own nation is in rapid decline, it is falling, it's falling economically, militarily, morally, educationally, I could go on and on, nations rise and fall. But for most citizens of our nation, even evangelicals, when they think of our nation, they think we will be different. We'll be that one nation in the history of the world. Forget the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Greeks, go on and on. We will be that one nation who will always rise. And ignoring the clear evidence in front of our very eyes that we are coming to a bitter end. Same thing is happening around the globe. 30 years ago, the USSR began to fall, broken up into many states. We're watching the final demise of the Soviet Union, of Russia today. Nations rise and fall. What's fascinating is many evangelicals will attribute to the nation, this political entity, that we will always rise. But to the church, they think, "Why well, it's declining right now. It's probably crashing and burning. So when we look at the future of the Church of Jesus Christ, what does the Bible teach? Does the Bible present a fundamentally optimistic or a pessimistic worldview concerning the church and its future? How you answer this question will dramatically impact the way you do everything from parenting to economics to missions Up until 150 years ago, the Protestant church was of one mind, and that perspective was one of gospel optimism, and that fueled the the modern missionary movement. But the recent promotion in the last 150 years of dispensationalism introduced a completely different worldview, one that was fundamentally pessimistic. And saw nothing but decline for the church in the future. Now, you know the difference between an optimist and a pessimist, right? An optimist will tell you the glass is half full. A pessimist will tell you the glass is half empty. And the engineer will tell you the glass is twice the size it needs to be. Today, we're going to see our Lord Jesus lay down a fundamentally optimistic worldview concerning the future of the church. He'll give two parables, and we are studying the parables of Christ. And I hope you have your Bible open to Luke 13. These are brief parables, but they make the point rather easily on the lips of our Lord Jesus. He will give two very brief parables that both teach that despite fierce opposition, the church, the kingdom of God, will continue to grow and expand. Now, he does this just to set this in place in in the context of Luke 13. If you look above up to verse 10, he does this to encourage his disciples because his disciples are looking around at the intense and hateful opposition to Jesus' ministry of grace and healing. He has just healed a woman bent double who's been that way for 18 years in the preceding verses in verses 10 to 17. And perhaps the disciples are saying to themselves, this movement of Jesus is going to sputter out and die. We are facing such vitriolic enemies. This kingdom that Jesus is talking about is going nowhere. And so that leads in to Jesus' two parables that he gives in verses 18 through 21. As I said, we are studying the parables of Jesus one by one, about half of the 40 parables that Jesus gives. And so today we'll be looking at two at once that teach differing aspects of the growth of the kingdom. Let's seek the Lord's help now. O oh, Sovereign Lord, you've given us this text by divine inspiration, and you have told us, promised us indeed, that it will be profitable for us, that it will profit us for doctrine, that it will profit us for reproof, that it will profit us for correction. And it will certainly profit us for instruction in righteousness, that we might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, that we might be mature. So take this word, press it home to our minds and hearts, deepen our trust in Christ as the king over the kingdom, strengthen our love to him, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you're looking at Luke 13, verses 18 through 21... You will notice that what both of these brief parables have in common is they are both about the kingdom of God. Any student of the Gospels will quickly notice, as you read through the Gospels, the emphasis by our Lord Jesus on the kingdom of God. There's, of course, no denying that Jesus preached what he called the gospel of the kingdom. At the beginning of Luke chapter 4, Jesus said to his disciples, I must preach the kingdom of God, for therefore I am sent. This gospel of the kingdom is what Jesus told his disciples to go and preach. It's what Paul preached, even when under house arrest. Let me remind you what we're told the content of Paul's preaching was. At the end of Acts 28, we're told Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God of God. So what is this gospel of the kingdom? This is important. It can be seen, its importance can be seen by the fact that, for example, the phrase, the kingdom of God appears well over 30 times in Luke's gospel alone. So let me give some definition to this. When you look at our parables, verse 18 through 21, we're talking about the kingdom of God. Let me give you a definition. The kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God is the good news That Jesus Christ is redeeming a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that he's extending and spreading his rule until the day dawns when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess him as Lord. Let me say that again because it's so vital in its definition. The gospel of the kingdom is this. It's the good news that Christ is redeeming a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and that he's extending, spreading his rule until the day dawns when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord. Now a few more things you should know about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the, the manifestation of the sovereign rule of God in power and grace, which has established a new order of righteousness and blessedness in history, in and through Christ, fulfilling all of God's old covenant promises. This kingdom will progressively triumph over all opposition in history and it will be consummated at the end of history in the second coming of Christ. We're told repeatedly in the gospels that this kingdom comes in the person and work of Christ. We're told this in Mark chapter 1 when we first meet Jesus in his gospel. We're told Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom had come when Jesus appeared. We're told as well that the kingdom of God is God-centered and God-given. For example, Jesus says in Luke 12, it's your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. This kingdom demands absolute righteousness of its subjects. Now, in our parables, the two parables we'll look at very briefly, verses 18 through 21, the king of the kingdom gives us some clear insight into the nature of the kingdom of God by using two short similes. If you weren't paying attention in seventh or eighth grade English class... A simile is a comparison by using the word like or as. So, for example, look at verse 18. Verse 18, Jesus says, What is the kingdom of God like? And then he answers, It is like a mustard seed. And then again in verse 20, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like 11. And what we'll see by these two comparisons is Jesus is teaching the kingdom of God has two kinds of power. One is the power of extension. Kingdom power is the, the power to rapidly expand. And the other is the kingdom has the power of transformation. Kingdom power is the, the power to change from the inside. And so let's look at those two in order. Look at the idea of intensive growth. Look at verse 21. When Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, meal till it was all leavened. When a woman in the first century made bread, she would put a tiny bit of leaven, yeast, into a large amount of flour. This would make the whole grow and swell from within. And the yeast, the leaven, would produce something wholesome, sweet, desirable. And by this, look at verse 21 carefully. Jesus is teaching not only growth in large numbers and impact. We'll come to that. That's the second type of growth in just a moment. But first, great internal and spiritual transformation. Jesus is speaking of that small, inconspicuous way that the kingdom comes to an individual He's speaking of what the Apostle Peter will later say in 2 Peter 3 is growth in grace and knowledge. Now notice the exact action. Look carefully at Jesus' very words in verse 21. The leaven is hid in the grain and then the process of growth and impact begin. Just so, the word must be hid in your heart. There's a a drawing towards the means of grace, to, to study the word, to pray. Quietly, lusts are crucified, and the victory is won. Slowly, change comes. This is the leaven of grace at work inside a man's life. Now, yeast is active. Look at verse 21. Once introduced into flour, it will work. It will not remain dormant. The same is true of the kingdom. Once a work of grace is begun in the soul of a man, it will never stand still. The whole character of a man will be changed. It will gradually leaven the whole. Little by little, the mind will be changed. The emotions will be changed. The will will be changed. The conscience will be changed. Now notice something else as we carefully examine this parable. Look at verse 21. The transforming element is introduced from the outside. This is a picture of God sovereignly coming to a man and transforming him by his work outside. Put away any notions that men can be changed by their own actions and will. Not only will a man be transformed by the word and the spirit coming to him, which is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 when he speaks of men being born again through the incorruptible seed of the word of God. But the point, and don't miss it, that our Lord is making about the gospel of the kingdom is this. It will, in every case, change a man, taking him from useless to useful, wicked to gracious, foolish to wise. Gradual transformation is the norm. If you look at verse 21 and you wonder what spiritual growth in an individual looks like, it looks like leaven inside a loaf. Gradual transformation. God promises, doesn't he all over his word, for example in Philippians 1.6, that he's begun a good work in you and he will bring it to completion. In most cases it will take 40, 50, 60 years. But the old man will be put to death. Patience will defeat your temper. Self-control will throttle your self-indulgence. Kindness and gentleness will put down your sharp tongue. If none of those things happen, then there never was a work of grace to begin with. The leaven of the kingdom, once placed in a man's heart, will transform his worship, taking him from a a disinterested observer to a passionate participant. It will transform your relationships, moving you from an embittered, unforgiving man to a reconciling forgiver. It will transform your ministry, taking you from a self-centered man to one who looks for places to serve and people to impact. This issue, if you think, this isn't interesting or relevant, this very issue is at the center of the debate in our very own PCA today. There are some in our midst saying that a man, for example, can be homosexual. He can be converted, but never make any real progress in sanctification, and never have those aberrant desires mortified. This, of course, is not what the New Testament teaches. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, talking about a man who the kingdom has come to him, the leaven has been placed in him. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, past tense, were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified and so by saying that the apostle paul is saying exactly what jesus says when when the kingdom of god comes and takes up residence in a man it changes him from the inside out and it crucifies those old lusts the kingdom of god grows like leaven but then there's a second type of kingdom growth Jesus wants to talk about, not just individualistic growth. And this is the problem with what the American church has had for at least the last 150 years, is only seeing growth in terms of private, personal, spiritual growth. But Jesus, before he talks about that, he talks about extensive church growth, kingdom growth. Look at verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew, and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now let me point out several things about this extensive growth of the kingdom. First of all, it starts small. You remember Jesus in another parable in Matthew 13 talks about the starting of the kingdom and compares it to the smallness of the mustard seed. In that parable, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which is the least of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The size of the initial seed is no index of its final form. This is obviously a a picture of the humble beginnings of the church. The church begins in an out-of-the-way place. It doesn't begin in Rome or Athens. It begins in Jerusalem. Jesus himself doesn't arrive on a white stallion, but as a carpenter. Then, how triumphant did the kingdom look at Golgotha? The kingdom starts with a crucified man, which would be a stumbling block to Jew and Gentile alike. If there was ever a religion that was a tiny seed at its beginning, that religion was the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 19. We're told these words about the kingdom of God. It grew. The kingdom of God is meant... And intended to grow. There is life in this seed. It must grow because it has all the power of God in it. And it did grow. When we trace the growth of the church in the first 200 years. From city to city to country to country received the good news. Preacher after preacher went forth proclaiming. And missionary after missionary rose up to go with the gospel. The growth I'm speaking of is not theoretical but actual. And if we are not seeing growth in our corner of the Lord's vineyard, we should be distressed. Now, I want you to notice the language Jesus uses. Look at verse 19. He's stating there when he says, The kingdom became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. What this is, and all of his hearers would have picked up on it, Jesus is taking an old covenant figure, and he's saying... I am saying that this old covenant prophecy of the growth of the kingdom is coming to pass with my kingdom. All the the birds of the air nesting in this large tree. Keep one finger here and look back at Ezekiel 17. And I want you to see the figure of speech that Jesus is drawing on. Ezekiel 17, beginning in verses 22 and following... Ezekiel seventeen twenty two. thus says the Lord, I will take one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and will plant it on a high mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell. All the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, he's speaking there of Israel, and exalted the low tree, he's speaking there of the Gentile nations, dried up the green tree, he's speaking of Israel, and made the dry tree flourish, he's speaking of Gentile nations. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. And so what Jesus does in our parable here in our text in verse 19, he's saying, it's time. The fulfillment of this kingdom promise is here. Now does Jesus sound, by the way, look carefully at the language in verses 18 through 21 in our text. Does Jesus sound pessimistic or optimistic here? Does this sound like Jesus is saying that the kingdom of Christ would fail in history before his second coming? Absolutely not. But in speaking of the growth of the kingdom, all that Jesus is doing is he is echoing what all the Old Testament writers have already prophesied. Sit back and go on a tour with me, and I want you to see what all the Old Testament writers, and then they'll quickly be joined by the new. listen to what all the Old Testament writers teach us about the growth of the kingdom of God. Genesis 12:3 the Lord says to Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so at the very beginning of the Bible, we have this picture painted for us of of an expansive kingdom, of the, the Abrahamic promises going and impacting every nation. Jesus, or Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 11, that the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? Every bit of territory is covered, saturated with water. In other words, the gospel will inundate the world. The good news of Christ's saving work is not for a few villages in Palestine or regions of the southeast of the United States. The whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And then again, Isaiah tells us the passage that Pastor Anderson read in our hearing a moment ago in Isaiah 2. gives us this glorious promise. Listen to this, this statement about the success of the kingdom. It shall come to pass in the latter days. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. This speaks of the great progress and influence of the kingdom of Jesus. It will be so transformational that Isaiah goes on to say that national and international peace will be an effect of the gospel spread. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet Isaiah, speaking of Christ, says, Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. This tells us that Christ's kingdom will not decline. It will not fail to increase. David affirms this. What I want you to see is all of the Old Testament voices sound like a choir singing in harmony. They're all singing of the growth of the kingdom. David says in Psalm 22, by the way, a psalm that was meant to be sung. He says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord and He rules over the nations. Did you hear what David said? All the ends of the earth shall turn to the Lord. He does it again in Psalm 72. David writes, He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing. In those days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace. He shall have dominion from sea to sea. From the river to the ends of the earth, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. The psalmist writes again in Psalm 86, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and glorify your name. But one of the most attractive pictures of this growth of the kingdom, and again, I want you to move out of the national mindset and into the kingdom of Jesus mindset again. Again, that our thoughts oftentimes are so focused on political entities and national entities and, and our loyalties are so stuck there instead of in a higher place that we think, oh, yeah, but Carl, tell me something good about America in prophecy. I'll tell you about every nation in prophecy. They'll all fall. They'll all decline. But this is the one kingdom that cannot fall. In fact, the one mark of this kingdom is it will always be growing until the king of the kingdom returns in triumph. Look at Ezekiel 47. It's a, a beautiful picture of the growth of the kingdom. It's a vision of the growth of the kingdom of Christ. In Ezekiel 47, it's this glorious picture of the kingdom flowing out of Jerusalem and impacting everything in its wake. Look carefully at this beautiful picture of the growth of the kingdom. Ezekiel 47, then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of that altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that cannot be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, This water flows to the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because the waters will go there. For they will be healed. And everything will live where the the river goes. This is a picture of the growth of the kingdom of God. The prophet Daniel lines up to agree. In Daniel chapter 2 we're told, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, And the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all other kingdoms and it shall stand forever. This is the only kingdom of which this can be said. Give up all ideas that says, America, this is the one kingdom that will stand forever. I'm sure I've seen it in prophecy in Revelation, I don't know, 34 or some chapter like that. Can't wait till Suzanne and Betty get to that and and we can all stand up and sing. I'm proud to be an American in our Bible study because this is the one kingdom that will last. We're told specifically in Daniel chapter 2, all other kingdoms besides the kingdom of Christ will be broken. The New Testament authors line up to concur. The Apostle John writes this way of the kingdom of Christ. He says in Revelation 7, one of those glorious throne scenes, John says, I looked and behold, I saw a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, all tribes, all peoples all tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb do you hear what john is saying he's saying this is not a this is not a remnant this is not a tiny shriveled up group of people who could fit in the back seat of your car it's a massive massive number from every nation Every linguistic group, that in itself is well over 10,000 groupings of people, linguistic groups. It's a great multitude which no one could number. The Apostle John goes on in Revelation to say, Revelation 11, There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This great text that we know well from Handel's Messiah The kingdoms of the world, all of them, good and bad, north and south, east and west, all have become, been subsumed into the kingdom of Christ. And only he shall reign forever and ever. Not only does this truth correspond with the rest of Scripture, most importantly, it corresponds and concurs with our Lord's teaching. Listen to what he says. Settle this once and for all. Jesus teaches believes and will affect the growth of his church. When he says in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall never prevail against us. Has this happened? Let me remind you of the obstacles. The leader of the kingdom of God was born in a barn. His inner circle was a group of uneducated blue-collar fishermen and tax collectors. One betrayed him. The leader was crucified, leaving 11 men. They were fiercely opposed and persecuted by Jewish and Roman authorities. They were despised and powerless, having no political pull whatsoever. But within weeks of the death and resurrection of Jesus, 3,000 men were added, we're told in Acts 2. A few months later in Acts chapter 4, 5,000 more were added. And the church began to, we are told, multiply, not grow by addition, multiply. Almost all of the original inner circle were executed in a horrific manner. Yet for the first 300 years, their numbers grew through severe persecutions. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church in every nation. Just as Jesus taught, they started small and became huge. They started as a Mediterranean regional phenomena and now members of the kingdom of Christ are in every nation on every continent. Today, there are over two 1.5 Point five billion, with a B, professing Christians worldwide. The countries of China, India, and Nigeria will see this year in each of those nations 2 million brand new believers. This year, Philip Jenkins, who has done the best writing on this phenomenon, who penned the next Christendom, 20 years ago, has carefully shown that the growth of the gospel is speeding up in Africa, in Asia, and in South America. So how do we apply these two very brief parables to us? Let me make several applications. I feel like I need to convince some of you. And so the first application is you need to know this gospel optimism has been the understanding of the greatest Christians... For 2,000 years. For example, John Calvin said, The kingdom of Christ will be glorious, not only before God, but in the eyes of men. We must go forward with a firm belief of success. He will surpass all our hopes. God, Calvin continues, God not only protects and defends the kingdom of Jesus, but also extends its boundaries far and wide. We must not judge by appearances in our day, but by God's promises. Which are always sure. John Owen, writing in 1651, stood before the House of Commons in London and he was asked to come and preach on this subject Would the kingdom of Christ grow or decline? Can you imagine the House of Representatives asking Pastor Anderson to come and preach on the subject Will the church grow or decline? Owen was invited to preach on this subject in the House of Commons in October of 1651. And so he preached a sermon that had this title. It's a legendary, it's a famous sermon entitled, The Kingdom of Christ Will Shake the Kingdoms of the World. And he preached this to the the House of Commons. And he explained to them that Christ would replace all of them with the triumph of his reign. And Owen makes six points in his sermon. He says certain things will characterize this time of the triumph of the kingdom of Christ. First, fullness of peace. Second, purity and beauty of gospel worship. Third, multitudes of converts, many persons, even nations. Fourth, the casting out of false worship and abominations. Fifth, The subjection of all nations throughout the whole world to Christ. And sixth, a glorious breaking of all who rise in opposition to Christ. Owen's optimistic confidence was rooted repeatedly in the promises of Scripture. And Owen concluded his sermon by saying, Though our persons stumble and fall, our cause will be truly, certainly, and infallibly victorious. Since Christ is risen and sits in triumph at the right hand of God, the gospel shall be victorious. Owen's successor at his church just down the road from the House of Commons was this small, wormy little man by the name of Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts, who we know well as the hymn writer, was Owen's successor at that church And his hymns breathe this gospel optimism. In just a moment, we're going to sing my favorite hymn. It should be yours as well. Jesus Shall Reign, which is a setting of Psalm 72. And Watts is more well known for his setting of Psalm 98. You know it as Joy to the World which exalts over the Savior's reign and of the expanding of Christ's kingdom and its blessing flowing to all nations. But closer to home, Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s writes this monumental work called A History of the Work of Redemption. And Edwards says, The kingdom of Jesus will displace the kingdom of Satan step by step, inch by inch, until the consummation of all things. The visible kingdom of Satan will be pulled down and the kingdom of Christ will be built on top of its ruins. This idea of gospel optimism is what all the great minds of Christendom have taught, believed, and promoted for 2,000 years. The second application. These parables should teach us patience in our witness for Christ. Once assured of this, that the kingdom will keep growing, that the kingdom is like the greatest tree that all the birds of the earth come and nest in, that even though it begins small, and at some times and places it falters, it continues to grow. And so what this ought to teach us is, keep sending, keep giving, keep telling, keep praying, and the kingdom will keep growing. Another application we should gain from this is these two parables, these two very brief parables, should teach us not to despair of any work for Christ, even though its first beginnings are feeble and small. Think of Martin Luther, nailing a sheet of paper, blowing in the wind to a door of a church in Germany. Who could have imagined this act would have changed the world? Or Hudson Taylor, arriving in China on March the 1st, 1854, as a single man. He soon marries. His first child dies, so he and his wife adopt a Chinese orphan named Tianqi. This simple act opens all kinds of doors. Before he's done, Taylor starts 125 Christian schools, brings 800 more missionaries to China, oversees 300 indigenous churches with 500 Chinese pastors, watches under his own ministry the word 20,000 conversions of Chinese people, and lights a fire that will never be put out. We worry about things like church finances and buildings and members. My friend, God's kingdom is growing, period. It may start small. Its effects may be hidden for a long time. But inevitably, irrepressibly, the seeds will ripen into a full harvest. In a very personal application, as we at Woodruff Road have more opportunity to send more and more and more men into missionary fields, we must rejoice. Let me remind you, we have sent out, we sent out Bertie Kona to Albania, who has planted the first Calvinistic and Reformed church in the history of the nation of Albania. We've sent Francisco Cardosa to Brazil, who is a church planting machine in Recife. We've sent Jay Brantley to Kenya, who is planting a church in an area where they don't even have clean water. If you'd like to assist with that, let me know. We've sent Octavius Delphils to the the ghettos and slums of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and there the kingdom of Christ is slowly displacing the kingdom of Satan. We've sent Aaron Halbert to Honduras, and Ben Cappers to that Mormon stronghold of St. George, Utah, Peter Zabo to Hungary, and many others. We must rejoice at this. Tonight, and you will want to be here as our dear brother Mark Kuo is being ordained, he's being sent by us, into the face of political tension, military danger, all for the sake of church planting and kingdom extension in his home of Taiwan. Why does Mark do this? Why does he go? Because he knows he's not going on a fool's errand. He knows he's going to something that Christ is blessing and will grow. We must rejoice at every single opportunity to send more men into the missionary fields that are white unto harvest. And finally, and many of you will say, okay, Carl, I was with you until now. Because now you're getting a little too close to home. We must pray that the Lord will raise up more who will go and multiply the kingdom out of our own sons and daughters. Almost every Wednesday night in the little group that I lead, we pray for the Lord to raise up young men who right now are in our middle school group or our high school group, that he would call them, that they would recognize this is a cause that cannot fail. Christ is building his church. His kingdom is spreading. What more glorious enterprise for your son, for your daughter to be a part of than to go and be a part of building the kingdom? Let's pray together. Our Father, how we thank you that Christ is indeed building his kingdom as we see billions today, billions of people bowing the knee to worship him. Lord, we pray you would speed the growth of the kingdom until that day comes when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Lord, give us a zeal and a joy and a true... biblical.